meeting of the management executive of Allstones with Alan Giles, and I happen to be sitting next to Alan. I told you this. <laughs> oh, can you? Can this be? Oh, it's very bad. I'm just... No, but <laughs> yeah, Alan had on. written at the top of his paper piece of paper good morning everyone <laughs> this is a man who left nothing to chance you know that's like my husband who writes at the top of the, my shopping list take list i'm sure it's a shock to discover i'm, I'm a late comer to the world of lists but I'm, i you know as you get older you just do forget things i, I used to think that i was, had a really brilliant memory and would never forget anything but i just don't know whether it's just age and there's more lumber yeah. in the in the old storeroom or whether you really do start to lose the plot i don't know but i mean that i can go to the shop now and come back and have literally forgotten the one thing, you know, the yeah. chicken that I'm supposed to buy. I, we have a, we have the tradition now on our shopping list, uh, in the Miller family, of also having a pseudo list, where <laughs> where we where what we do is we try and meal plan for the week ahead, but both of us feel resentful about yeah. having to do it. So we write things on like Friday potluck the resentment's important is uh, you know the, the boys this is how it's tragic he said why don't we have a list on the fridge of things that we need and I said because then I would feel my life was a meaningless <laughs> empty void and I would not be able I just you know I couldn't live with myself what's important but they, they what's said, important but dad, boys yeah. but, dad, but then you wouldn't forget things and I said I, I know you're right you What's see, important I, I, is yeah, the illusion of spontaneity, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, one might as well just give up. I like that. It's a really brilliant type. Right, have a list and then just write silly things on it. Like, yeah. who cares? Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Backlisted. As usual, we're gathered round the kitchen table of our sponsors, Unbound, the website where readers and writers come together to make great books. I'm John Mitchinson, long-time denizen of the world of books. You're <laughs> uh, a denizen now. Excellent. That's what it says on uh, my paper. It does. It's, and I'm Andy Miller. I'm the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. Hello, everyone. And as usual, we're joined by the author and flaneur, Matthew Clayton. Hello, Matthew. Hello, everyone. This is Backlisted, as you know, where we aim to give new life to old books. We've been described as like a radio show, but better, a brilliant listen and The Literary Goon Show. All Thank which, you, Mother. All of which, in their own way, <laughs> contain a grain of truth. Every week we're, of course, joined by an esteemed guest. This week's guest is Alice Jolly, novelist and playwright and author of the brilliant memoir Dead Babies in Seaside Towns. And her book choice this week is The Great Fire by Shirley Hazard. But first, let's start as we always start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. <laughs> Andy, yes. what have you been reading? OK, well... Long-time listeners to Batlisted will recall <laughs> there are such things. Will recall that on the last podcast we talked about David Bowie's list of a hundred books. Indeed, and I highlighted three particular titles from that list that I decided that I would read, and I've been reading. Is that because you'd read less than the rest of us on the list? I'm, I'm sure. Fewer, sorry, fewer. I'm coming to that, Matthew. Um, You've been reading up, haven't you? You've been trying also, to catch Matthew, up. Uh, also, Matthew, I hadn't read fewer than you. <laughs> really? <laughs> so let's just remind people. I shouldn't have of said that, that should I? Um, <laughs> so I've been reading the first. It's not a competition. It's not a competition. Of course. I've been reading the first of those uh, three books, which was Pacoon, Spike Milligan's first novel, uh, which was first published in 1963. Um, he didn't publish another one until 1987. Can you remember what it's called? No, I can't. I didn't even know he'd written another one. What was that? He what wrote was two further novels. No, amazing. It's called The Looney, the 1987 one. Completely passed me mm -hmm. by. But Pakun, how many copies do you think Pakun has sold? 
um, fifty-five thousand. <laughs> Higher, a hundred thousand. It has sold in excess of six million copies. No, six, six million, million copies. copies of Pakun were sold. And, as and we I said, was it one was of on... them. I got given it for Christmas yeah. in round about 1973-74 with that very same jacket that you've got on mm-hmm, that, that paperback mm-hmm. over there, visual gag for all of you listening. And I remember lo- absolutely loving it because he was my kind of hero when I was growing up. I'm just going to read the, the foreword because it's very, very brief and it will relate to other things we talk about this week. This is what Spike Milligan wrote on the SS Canberra in the Indian Ocean. <laughs> yeah, what was he doing there, do you know? On one of his rest cures, I think. <laughs> okay. um, <laughs> yeah. This damn book nearly drove me mad. I started it in 1958 and doodled with it for four years. I don't think I could go through it all again. Therefore, as this will be my first and last novel, I would like to thank those who helped me get it finished. <laughs> first, I want to thank me. <laughs> Then Paddy, my wife, without her, for certain reasons, this book would never have been completed. I also thank my family for eternal encouragement. Harry Edgington, my old army pal, who cheered me up when I was down. Gordon Lansborough, who told me the novel was funny when I thought it wasn't. My three children, Laura, Sean and Silo, who think I'm good, quote, all the time. (laughs) To Patrick Ford, the man who sold me good wine, Mrs Jolly, who typed it, and the human race for being the butt of all my jokes. Genius. Isn't it great, isn't it? Brilliant. This was published in 1963, and David Bowie, as a Goons fan, probably would have read it then when he was 15 or 16. And really, I have to say, 15 or 16 is probably the optimum age to read this book and why it seems to stay with people. If you look at the reviews on Amazon, it's one after another saying, this is the funniest book ever written. This is the funniest book ever written. <laughs> and is it? <laughs> I, I can it remember almost nothing. Sort of vaguely set uh, in Ireland, I remember. Yeah, that it's much. set in 1924. It's uh, yeah. about an Irish village called Pakun, which during the yeah. partition of Ireland is split in two by the Boundary Commission. But, I mean, the thing about it, if ever a plot were, were just pretext, that's what this is. <laughs> it's a lousy novel. It's a terrific book. It's a, it's a, a lousy novel. The thing I loved about it, I'm not going to read loads of bits, it is very, very funny, but it also has some brilliant Milligan-esque darkness in it. Yeah. These beautiful aphorisms, which are like something out of Schopenhauer. <laughs> Life is a long, agonised illness only curable by death. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's beautiful, you know. He did have demons, let's be frank. He did, yeah. yeah. This is Anyway, I'm just going to read this little bit, which is both funny and you'll see... Spike was not afraid to paint it black. (laughs) The two men climbed to the lip of a hill and peered cautiously over. A fine sight met their eyes. Gleaming white in the morning sun were the tents of that nobly need society, the Scouts. It was the Ulster annual jamboree. For weeks past, hundreds of spotty-faced herberts, with yodelling voices and chin fuzz, had tied three million knots, started 10,000 twig fires and completed 600 leaf shelters. Perfect training for round about 3000 BC, but bloody useless in the 20th century. Where were their Geiger counters, their strontium detectors, their books on how to bury 10 million incinerated children? Be prepared. Ha ha. <laughs> that's, you know, that's quite, quite dark. And for me, the pleasure of the book, the humour of it doesn't really come from, as you might expect in a novel, character or situation, though some of the farce elements clearly do but from Spike, clearly struggled with it, trying to amuse himself while writing it. And lots of the gags are linguistic ones or subversions of cliches or or set phrases as he goes along that you feel he's just in that kind of quicksilver way. 
has has followed the rabbit down the rabbit hole rather than deliver you a satisfying novel <laughs> you know rather better to be amu- better be to be amusing than to be perfectly formed i think but his memoirs you know that rommel gunner who and yeah. adolf hitman my party and his downfall i mean they were they were like that too there's just a lot of brilliant observation of army it's like life seven volumes of those yeah it? i mean it, and they, they were, were all bestsellers as well so. yeah so that's book 30 on my bowie checklist i'm reading um english journey by jp Priestley. that's right. book 31 so mitch Next I'm week. coming for you. Yeah, no, no. That's what I'm saying. I'm coming for your 35 or no, whatever I'm, it was. I'm, 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 loving, I'm loving this, this challenge. I'm going to have to, <laughs> I'm gonna have to go back and start competitively reading in the opposite <laughs> direction. Um, it's worth saying there's a great telegram just before Peter Sellers died that he sent to Spike saying, I want to get back together again. I want it to be like the old days. Yeah. It's really beautiful, short telegram. But, I mean, I'm not sure how well. I mean, it's this eternal problem of how well does comedy age whether the goon shows now are as hysterically funny as say yeah. you know my dad's generation or yeah, yeah. prince charles who's yeah i mean prince charles for me is that's what i think of the goon show i immediately associate with prince charles and i don't think prince charles's taste in comedy is probably going to be mine <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and i remember thinking that when i was a teenager as well and yeah. it was definitely the goons was too far back for me to go to have you ever comedy. read um roger lewis's incredible book the Life and Death of Peter Sellers. No, but I, I mean, I sort of, I'm, I'm aware yeah. of it. It's Whoa, of, yeah. what a book. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm going way <laughs> off piece now, but what a book that is. That is the most, if Roger Lewis, for some reason, is listening to this, I, I say this <laughs> in the most affectionate and praiseworthy terms I can. That is the most ill-tempered, <laughs> intemperate biography I've ever read. It's full of footnotes where Roger Lewis simply rages at Peter Sellers for being such an arsehole. <laughs> so he clearly began the biography thinking, oh, this will be quite fun. Peter says he seems like a funny guy. And by the end, it hates him. It you is, know, it was a terror. I mean, I remember the movie, uh, the, the Sellers biopic, which actually was really good. Jeffrey Rush is But what it? a terrible, tragic, miserable life he had for, for yes, all indeed. the money. It's like, you know, yeah, the yeah, yeah. George Best times 10 where did it all go wrong (laughs) and speaking of george best times 10 what have you been reading uh well i've been reading because i uh declaring an interest i i had to interview him which i have done several times on stage a.a gill's memoir poor me a life which is essentially it is an autobiography but it is also really an account of the half of his life the first 30 years although as he pointed out in the interview he didn't start drinking when he was sort of a baby but half of his (laughs) life he was a serious drunk and the other half He's not been. He's obviously known as a very, very successful columnist and has a reputation for for being uncompromising in his views. And I have to say, it is it is a remarkable book. It's it's remarkable because the story's remarkable. How do you go from being as bad a drunk as he was? And he was serious, kind of, you know, DTs. It's a terrible thing where he to have his morning drinking has to his his shakes are so bad in the morning he has to put his arm into a sling to hold it steady enough to pour something into a cup. Right. And uh, there's a fantastic passage that I was just looking at before about where he, he's suffering from the, the from the DTs, and he um, sees a, a toad crouching in in the in the middle of his flat, and he you know because it's a it's a genuine vision he kicks it with his toe and it turns out to be a real toad, <laughs> he, you know, and he said toads are notoriously choosy about where they live. He said, but the the flat he was living in was so disgusting and algae ridden that it walked across half of Wandsworth looking for a place where it could hang out. <laughs> but it's full of you know if you like Gill's writing, which on form I do. 
there's some fantastic his description of the book i think is it's almost as good as a blurb this isn't going to be my debauched drink and drug hell there will be no lessons to learn no experience to share there won't be handy hints lists golden rules you'll find no encouragement for those who still stagger I'm not shifting through this soggy tangle of a shredded life for your benefit. I have no message, no help. This isn't a book to give to your sister whose son is having too good a time or the friend who struggles with his cravings like a randy fat girl squealing no, no, no as her hand shimmies up your shirt. (laughs) That's Gil. And I have to say, I published him 20 years ago. And I always wanted him to write a proper book. Yeah. He's such a good journalist, so good on the short yeah, sprint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd commissioned a book about England called The Angry Island, which was almost a good book, uh, almost a great book. I think this comes as close as, as, as you get to the, to the really, really good. There is stuff in here about, you know, his brother was a Michelin-starred chef who disappeared. There's stuff about his father, his mm-hmm. relationship with his parents. His father directed Civilization. It's wonderful. I'm just going to crave one an indulgence for one little passage because he's obviously very, very good on food. That's what he writes about. And uh, I guess that's what people know him for. But he's got such an interesting take on it. He, I mean, he, he, the connection with his brother, his brother was a chef. So food is, is, is an important thing to him. Now, of course, I'm not going to be able to find the piece. Ah, here it is. Here it is. I uh, love this. He said, one of the great misconceptions about dinner is that nice people make good food that there is a soul in honest, loving dishes which are passed from the hand of the chef to the mouth of a grateful diner that you could trust a good cook. But it's almost exactly the opposite. Great food is cooked by twisted, miserable, depressive, cruel, abused and abusive, needy, compromised and shamed people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not sure I entirely agree with it, but it's, he goes on to talk about it in such brilliant... And, and he's a, I mean, he's a really, really, really good cook, and he writes about food wonderfully. But it's, it's a wounded, I think, in bits, really quite profound book. It's brilliant on the drinking. It's brilliant on how good, how strong you have to be. There's a great story in there. He says, you know, if you're talking about about willpower and alcoholics lacking it, he said, just think about an 18 year old addict who probably needs to raise between 80 and 100 thousand pounds a year in order to maintain their habit. They have to do that on their own doing things that are illegal yeah. with absolutely no help and almost everybody around them telling them what a useless piece of shit they are. You know, if you could bottle that, uh, he said that would be, you know, you, you'd have a nation of entrepreneurs instead of, <laughs> instead of just a nation of staggering drunks. I was really interested about what you were saying a, a moment ago about this being like a proper book. This is an interesting topic, this, about the barriers that there are to journalists writing good books. Because my experience over the years, I've worked with quite a few journalists on books, and sometimes they deliver great books and sometimes they don't. And I always feel there are two things that choke them. The first thing is the book is legitimacy. Yeah. Okay, so they get the fear. But the second thing is they're really good at, clearly they're good at writing pleasing sentences. Yeah, but they're also they also tend to deliver chapters which are all the exact same length, <laughs> which are hermetically sealed from one another. Yeah, because they're so used to turning in pieces on deadline, right? That don't actually add up to a book. They add up to a, a series of pieces. And, and I would say, and we all say this. I mean, I would probably have made this book a little shorter because I think there is a couple of things that you feel are added in towards the end. There's a, there's a very short chapter on his interesting relationship with religion which probably doesn't quite fit i mean i actually think the narrative when he's writing about drinking and then how drinking kind of the addiction to drinking kind of gets 
changed. He, I mean, the, the, the core of the book is really about him wanting to be an artist and deciding that he was never really going to be a good enough artist to do that. Mm. But he discovers words and he becomes, even though he's profoundly dyslexic, he becomes a very, very good writer. But you're absolutely right. And I think that's been the problem with his previous books. I mean, you yeah. know, he says somewhere, he quotes Cyril Connolly as saying that literature is, is, is something that you, again, you know, you read more, more than once, whereas journalism is consumed yeah, in yeah, the yeah. instant. Yeah. And I think there is that sort of sense with journalists that they're so good at, they are so good at deadlines and they're so good yeah. at, at turning stuff in and, and being interesting about whatever they're being told to be interesting, stringing it into, into a meaningful whole. Is, is difficult. But this is definitely the one, I think, where he's come closest to that. And there are some really haunting passages in the book. And he's very, you know, as I say, it's, it's disarmingly honest. And the basic story is, is, is a remarkable one. How do you go from mm. being a, a kind of really kind of serious drunk to a very mm. successful mm. journalist? I picked it up in Hatchards a couple of weeks ago and did that thing of... Uh, so Hatchards is in between our office and Soho. And if you're walking into Soho for lunch and you're early, I'll always go into like Hatchards or Waterstones and try and... Uh, you'll pick up a book and sometimes you just want to read that book. And I spent 10 minutes kind of reading a little bit from every chapter to try and digest that <laughs> um, and not be late for lunch. Uh, you know, I loved it. And I thought I just I had that immediate hit of this is a book I'm going to really enjoy reading. I mean, I'll, I'll give you one last. I mean, when he's good on a one-liner, I mean, he, this is just him on snobbery, which he's very good on. Snobbery is like peeing in your own pants. For a moment, you feel relieved and a warmth. But everyone can see you've done it and you're left feeling embarrassed <laughs> and uncomfortable. <laughs> We've talked about books enough. Now for some capitalism. In relation to the book that Alice has chosen for us to all read and talk about, that sense of the Great Fire being rooted in Shirley Hazard's personal experience. Uh, there are, as she says, strong autobiographical elements in this book. Well, and yet journalism it ain't you know it's a highly sophisticated partial novel before we go around do you think you need to know anything about Shirley Hazard before you read The Great Fire? No and actually more than that I don't think it seems an odd thing to say that it actually even matters what The Great Fire is about and I don't think it even matters who the people in it are because <laughs> it's not it's, oh, not, it's, it's not about plot and yeah. it's not about character. The characters yeah. are actually unmemorable, in all honesty. And yet, you know, you think, well, does she even like this book? I mean, it's definitely in my top ten all-time favourite books. Yeah. And yet, it. I think one of the things about very good books, actually, is it's very hard to put your finger on exactly where the greatness of them lies. And also, I think what you were saying about Pakun was very interesting. That actually tends to be that the books we think are very great books we can also see really quite big flaws in them. Yeah. And I once read a review of a John Fowles book, which I thought, yes, that's absolutely spot on, and it applies to this. And this reviewer said, do you know, I'd rather read John Fowles getting it wrong than anybody else getting it right. And so, yes, that's the thing. Of, and then with Shirley Hazard, you know, it's like rereading this book. Actually, I can, as I say, it's not plot or character. Neither are really that great in all honesty and yet the language of the book is yeah. so extraordinary that you don't care you really don't I, care I, i'm gonna uh, <laughs> encourage me to show my hand <laughs> go on Andy. well Come okay on. so look so you love the book yes alice. i absolutely alice love loves it, the book matthew did you like the book i love the book john did you uh, like the book i also love the book and also i know 
less about Shirley Hazard, apart from the fact that I vaguely picked up that she was married to Francis <laughs> Steenmuller, but I, I, I don't have, really know that much about I have, Francis Steenmuller. It doesn't really yeah, help. I have uh, facts. So I, he's married to Shirley Hazard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I came with no, no structure of anything, yeah. and I have to say I was pretty blown away by it as well. I, I, I think in a way, emboldened as you are. I've yet to show my hand. It made me think a lot again about fiction and what makes fiction so extraordinary. Characters who are not that interesting, not not that exceptional, and a plot, to be honest, that I was thinking this would make one of the world's dullest movies because there's a lot of letters in the book and a lot of a lot of what passes between the the, the main characters is is not when they're all in the same room together. So, Andy, well, I, unveil. I, okay, so I do know a little bit about Shirley Hazard, and I did come to the book knowing a fair amount about Shirley Hazard. And I have to say, I am... There are things I did really like about it, but there were also things I was quite sceptical about. And as we go along, we might... I feel emboldened to touch upon those, Alex, <laughs> because you said there are flaws in it. I There are a couple of things that made my teeth itch, which, yeah. we, which we can talk about as we as we go along. We do this thing on Backlister where we read out the blurb on the back of the book. So I'm just going to do do that, as you say... This is the blurb on the back of the uh, British edition of uh, the current British edition of this book. But you've got another blurb. I've actually got two blurbs. You'll see why I've got two blurbs when I read the first one. Go. Okay, here we go. 20 years in the writing, The Great Fire is a triumphant novel of lives shadowed by war and redeemed by love. In war-torn Asia and stricken Europe, people must reinvent their lives and expectations and learn from their past to dream again. A man and a woman seek to recover self-reliance and tenderness, struggling to reclaim their humanity. Um, you know, that's... But no, I, say, I, I actually think that's quite good. I mean, I can see... I, 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 it wouldn't surprise me if it doesn't sell a book. But, <laughs> but actually, um, quite it, so. it does explain that, in a way, the story yeah. of the central two characters, which actually is just love and war, which isn't really yeah, very yeah. original, but there were all these other stories woven into it. And obviously, The Great Fire is the Second World War, and it's all these people trying to rebuild their lives and also all these people so confused because after all it should have been a great moment you know Great Britain was victorious and the empire was still standing and we were victors and there's all these people realising that victory just hasn't given what it promised at all One of the things I was really impressed in the book is the presence of death illness and deformity throughout it characters remember awful injuries that have happened to themselves and other people Characters die, no spoilers, remarkably regularly and quickly in this book. Almost like the characters are caught in a kind of post-traumatic moment of trying to understand what the the Great Fire was, Second World War, and what it might lead to next. Yes, I think it's a huge sort of book of trauma and also dislocation and fractured lives. Mm. And one mm. of the things about it is is it moves from place to place continually and people are just yeah. forever saying goodbye to each other in rather traumatic ways. And you realise that, yes, that was the character of that time, that people's lives had become sort of scattered around the world and they'd lost half the people that they loved. Yeah. And it was incredibly difficult to begin to sort of put it back together. So I'm just going to read the American blurb yeah. now because it has some names in it. Um, (laughs) Aldred Leith, military hero and son of a famous novelist has come to Eastern Asia to observe firsthand the subject matter of a book he intends to write there he meets Helen, the teenaged daughter of a local Australian commander and becomes captivated by her ability to live vicariously through literature 
Despite their differences in age, the two gradually are drawn to one another. Both must heal from the recent global horrors before regaining the capacity to love. Now, that's a great book. I think it's, it, de- it's definitely a better book. It's a, a, a bit more helpful, isn't it? And in terms of the discussion, <laughs> for, any, for anyone listening, <laughs> it's given them uh, something to hang their hat on. Do you want to, Alice, just give everybody a, a sense of the story of the book? Just because I think that is in, it kind of is important, even though we've said that characters don't matter and the plot doesn't matter. <laughs> but I think just some sense that it is, as you say, it's... it's, it's The other thing that I, I just want, before I forget this, because as you were talking about, the, there's also, it's not just the shadow of one war, it's the, the strong belief that another one is about, Absolutely. Is about to start it's almost like all the certainties have disappeared and although the the piece for you know there's a a, Aldred the main character and his friend Peter both I think have say at various points that the peace is not really kind the boredom of peace is not really working for them either Mm. but there is as the book uh, develops a a strong sense that the what I guess we would now call the Cold War was actually going to end up with military with China with Russia and America that there was going to be you know that hostilities had only had only really stopped for a small amount of time there's a lovely phrase from um, a review of the Great Fire we should just say something that the Great Fire surely has its fourth novel and it won the National Book Award in it's published 2003 Won the National Book Award 2004. Um, there's a lovely phrase sure, in a review. the Orange Prize as well. Review by Adam Mars-Jones, which I, th- I feel sure is going to become a euphemism on Backlisted in future episodes. He says, The Great Fire has a narrative that is beautifully managed but lays no claim to momentum. <laughs> now, <laughs> which is, Alice, exactly what you said. You know, it, it, the plot is secondary at best. Yes, and Which is fine in literature. Yeah. I have no problem with that at all. But yes, but there, and there were all. But what there are is all these amazing sort of vignettes, these little scenes of certain characters who've been affected by the war in one way or the other. But what's so wonderful is that they kind of appear, and you have this little story. And then sort of quite randomly, they're gone. And in, you know, the more sort of the novel and now we see an awful lot of, everything's got to pay off. You know, if you're being told about yeah. something, there's a reason you're being told about it and it's going to come up again later. Lots of stuff in this just comes up and it's an amazing little scene in itself, which is so perfectly put together. And you feel not as though you've read it, but as though you've lived through it. But then it's gone and it and it doesn't ever come back again. It's yeah. not a constructed plot in that kind of way. But I just find that such a huge relief. Yes, I, I agree completely. And, and the way characters represent particular strands of experience after the war and wondering what will happen next. I don't want to give a spoiler, but the character of Exley, mm. what happens to Exley yes. is particularly... Um, Bleak and just left. Is there a clue in his name? (laughs) (laughs) Sort of. Yeah. Um, We're we're, we're trying not to to do spoilers, but I mean, I think it is important to say that the core of the book is badly handled, could have been quite tricky, couldn't it? I mean, it's a a man in his mid 30s who falls in love with a teenager who is, I think, 16 at the beginning of the book and only just 16 at the beginning of the book. So, as they always used to say, query taste. Um, And (laughs) What I felt was that is the kind of the overarching, and as Alice has said, there are lots of other characters, and you're, you know, you, you're built up a sort of a kaleidoscopic sense of lives that have been fractured by war, but that is the one that holds the whole book together, and for quite a large chunk of the book, Aldred Leith, Major Leith, the character, and Helen, who is the girl, 
They're not in the same space together. Although I have to say, when they are in the same space, the initial, the falling in love bit is pretty beautifully handled, I thought. Mm -hmm. Very mm -hmm. sensitively done. Yeah. Yeah, but it's also interesting because when they write to each other, they've all got the same voice. And actually, the dialogue at the end, you know, have dialogue between two 17-year-old girls. And you've got to say that there are no 17-year-old girls, even I, in 1940. I wanted to punch but, my but own I don't mind. face off <laughs> <laughs> during the dialogue. The dialogue... The dialogue was one of the things I really struggled with. Well, you see, no, I, I just didn't care because I love I Shirley ha Hazard's voice so much yeah. that I'm completely happy for all yeah. of her yeah. characters. Yeah. And also it felt to me like, you know, when people people talk about Graham Greene, who, of course, actually was a friend of Shirley Hazard's, they talk about Greenland. Well, to me, there's Hazard land, you know, that you've just entered yeah. the land of this book where people speak in True. this extraordinary heightened way. And to me, I just completely accept mm. it. Although when I take a step back, I am thinking... Yes, I'm surprised an editor didn't have a bit of a go about that one. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was something she did which I really liked. I mean, the tenses do shoot around as well, which uh, usually gets a you know big black mark because you. But what she does is she she'll have a character say something, and then in the same sentence you're getting the interior backstory. Uh, you know what's mm. behind the, the 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 line of dialogue is reproduced almost um, immediately, which means that you're sometimes I find myself having to reread. Um, pa passages of dialogue several times to to work out what was being said and what wasn't being said. Yeah. But actually, I did sort of feel that 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 was kind of that was a that's pretty brave. I mean, you know, you get you we get so used to now sort of Hemingway esque staccato dialogue yes. I, to have that sort of interiority kind of put on the page in that way, which is why I think it would make such a such a ghastly movie. Well, it's drawn. You can see me. you can see stylistically as well. Like I think I, I think she writes in a way which is evocative of. Um, both the Greens, no relation, uh, Graham Greene and Henry Green. There's an interesting fusion of the... Because the, Graham Greene is a great one for giving you a line of dialogue and a paragraph of thought to accompany it. Yeah. And she was great friends, as you mm. said, Alice, with Graham Greene. She wrote a memoir um, called Green on Capri, which is a fascinating um, book. And she, she said she believed Greene was, a, was um, simultaneously... Um, a brilliant writer and a monster. <laughs> you know, <laughs> unreasonably, as they, as they can be. So um, I'm interested, because uh, as I say, I came to it with no particular... Fact me up, Andy, is what I... As well. <laughs> give, me, give, me a bit, give me a bit of background about... I mean, I, I, I want to ask Alice too about whether where this falls. You've read presumably other Shirley Hazards. Um, yes, I have. And it is interesting because the transit of Venus... Um, is, there are, again, a lot of similarities that make you think, yes, this all came from her, her own life because it's a very, it is that yeah. similar world and lot, lots of sort of similar things about the book. But again, you don't think, oh, wait a minute, this is all a bit too similar to something else I've read. You just accept that this is her world. And I think there is also that thing of saying that actually pretty much all writers, in a sense, only have one story. And their one yeah. story relates to some huge and horrible loss. And as quite a young woman, she did have this appallingly dislocated life caused by yeah. the war. And it's obvious that in her writing, she circles that again and again in different ways. But why not? Because it makes a fantastic book. And she says, I think, that The Transit of Venus contains... Her, a portrait of her mother. She's quite open in, in saying, and that the great fire, Helen in the great fire, is her. 
Yes, I, yeah. Uh, I yeah, guess she's quite open about it, saying. Think, yeah, because she had a relationship with an older officer, didn't she, when she was quite young? I think so. Yes, yeah. So like I'm that. just going to read um, a brief paragraph written by the editor of this book, a book called "We Need Silence to Find Out What We Think," which is a newly published book of Shirley Hazard's essays edited by Brigitte Olibas, and she wrote this introduction. Actually, it's terrific. I'm just going to read this short paragraph so people can get a place, if they don't know who Shirley Hazard is, get a sense of, of her. She was born in 1931. Shirley Hazard stands as a distinctive, even idiosyncratic figure in the New York literary scene she inhabited from the middle of the 20th century. Her significance as a literary author is by now well established, a claim such as that made implicitly by the publication of this collection, that she might also be viewed and valued as a public intellectual, rests on the basis of her distinctive life and associations as well as her fiction. She left her native Australia in 1947 as a very young woman, without having completed a formal education and wound up in New York, where she worked in a relatively lowly capacity for the United Nations from the early 1950s. After resigning her post there to write full-time, at first mainly short fiction for The New Yorker, she published a number of acclaimed novels. In the early 1960s, she met and married the Flaubert scholar Francis Stiegmuller, and the couple lived part of each year in Naples and Capri and part in Manhattan, where their extensive circle of friends and associates included many of the significant literary figures of the time, including those known as the New York intellectuals. Um, she published two books of short stories in the 1960s and then four novels, uh, The Evening of the Holiday in 1966, the Bay of Noon in 1970, The Transit of Venus in 1980, and The Great Fire in 2003, which, as we said, won the National Book Award. She also published a book about Graham Greene. We've talked about that. And she published two books about the UN. And actually, her work, she was, she's almost a whistleblower before that term exists in this sense, at the UN. She is the person who outed Secretary General Kurt Voldheim as someone who had... <laughs> let's say an appalling <laughs> war record uh, um, and reading about her clearly her life has been an attempt to balance out the desire to both read reading is a very big thing for her and write and also perform public duty she saw her work as the at the un as very important and um her archive there are thirty thousand letters or something given her archive pertaining to the UN. To me, what's interesting in that biography is the huge gaps between the novels. You know, obviously it's known that she took a very, very long time to write a novel. But I, I must say that you can you can feel that in the book because it reads almost like poetry. It's incredibly condensed, the amount she sort of gets into a paragraph. And often if you look on a sentence-by-sentence -sentence basis, the sentences are doing incredibly different things one after yeah. another, so that it should just read like a huge jumble. But actually, because it's so finely balanced and it all has this amazing kind of falling cadence and this incredible nostalgia to it, it kind of it works fantastically, but it, you almost feel it shouldn't. This is um, Aldred Leith, who's the main character, and he had a brief um, first marriage, which was one of those wartime marriages which didn't work out because the people largely were just never in the same place. And he, the, he <laughs> the goes... The theme of the book. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Nobody's ever in the right place. And he looks back um, on meeting this woman he, he married to. He met her briefly in London for the purpose of signing the divorce papers. Um, but actually, strangely, finished up going bed to, to bed with her, although they, they then get divorced. And this is a little bit about that. He says... Oh, Maura, he'd said, our strange story. 
and she had shed silent tears not intended to change things. Her arched throat and spread hair, and the day dying in the wet window. The marriage was dissolved, evaporating along with its memories and meetings, and the partings of war. The letters increasingly laboured, the thoughts, kisses, regrets. The lawyers were paid. The true marriage, indissoluble, was simply the moment when they sat on the rented bed and grieved for a fatality older than love. And it's just extraordinary, isn't it? It's just mm-hmm. like reading poetry. It's just fantastic. He later writes in his journal about the, the relationship with Moira um, that you know they'd achieved ritual fulfilment. He said, it is the incompleteness that haunts us, which is a kind of, you know... The, the book, I think, is, is full of really remarkable writing and and not just remarkable I mean there is some brilliantly descriptive writing there's a passage I marked out later much later in the book about a a log pile which uh, is just uh, you know when you it's not often you get you get in novels a kind of precision of description um this just just this uh, just a little bit here uh, it's about it's about wood that is being brought in um uh, it's he's when he's back in the uk and it just uh, the scrubby bark coruscated or the smooth angular pieces like bones forms arched and grooved like a lobster or humped like a whale dark joints to which foliage adhered like bay leaves in a stew pine cones and a frond of pine needles still flourishing on the hack branch and the creatures that inched or sped or wriggled out, knowing the game was up, slugs, pale worms, tiny white grubs scurrying busily off as if to a destination, an undulant caterpillar and an inexorable thing with pincers, or the slow slide of an unhoused snail, the hodmodod, as they called him here, revisiting the lichens and pigmentations and fungoid flakes that had clung to his only home, freckled growths dusted seemingly with cocoa, red berries, globules of white wax, wet earthy smell, forest smell, the implements set aside. The elder, that, that's that's the end of it. But it's just, that's pretty mesmerising stuff. mesmerised too by the oft remarks upon velvet uh, tones of John Mitchinson there. <laughs> <laughs> just go and read one just a little, it's so brilliant. It's the first kiss of this teenage girl with an American who she doesn't fancy. And um, without going into, but this is this is what this is her reflection on this first kiss. Uh, this then was the flourished reality, a brute fact, to which loving kindness was simply, or not even, a preliminary. There had been a screen between her and this. Reality was a wet thing, a wet thick thing, alive in her mouth. It seemed to her something that dogs might do. Yeah, ah, that's great. So I, I, I think that's great. extraordinary because there's an incredible brutality, and yeah, all together yeah, yeah. in this writing, although it's all sort of so middle class and so educated, there's a real brutality. In Look, it. you know, I'd also like to add that although this, this, I have no problem with writers writing dialogue which isn't like dialogue that people <laughs> would actually speak. Like yeah. Okay, I just found the similarity of the dialogue to the prose to be. Distracting. I, I just, I didn't find it distracting at all. I just coasted straight in there. And I, I what you said earlier, Alice, really rang true with me that you entered Hazardland, like Greenland, whatever. It's kind of, um, I went into the book and I was really felt transported by it. And it really took me back to the books I read when I was in my early 20s. 
and I realised that I read a lot of romance. And actually, this is what this is what this book Touching is. Confession. Well, thank you, John. Uh, and I think this is what this book is, and it's a, it's a, there's a romance at the heart of it, like there's a romance at the heart of lots of Hardy novels, or you know, lots of them, lots of things I read at that age that particularly you're particularly kind of sensitive were you, to. Were I you think. a teenage Thomas Hardy fan? I absolutely was. Yeah. Very oh, much makes so. note. <laughs> <laughs> so was In, I. Yeah. Were you? Yes. Uh, huge oh, fan. And, uh, yeah. and I went to a fantastic talk at the British Library last year about wit in literature and uh, the importance of wit in literature and the panel which includes said several um sages uh said well who is the, is there any writer who writes without wit at all and it was agreed that thomas hardy was there <laughs> yeah, which might explain why he's not my favorite but uh, but i respect i respect that I respect that's that. interesting you you're not a lawrence fan either yeah. um now there's also a thing that we should talk about. This book won the National Book Award. This novel won the National Book Award. It was published in 2003. It won the National Book Award in 2004. And um, in 2004, at the ceremony in 2004, Stephen King, uh, the author Stephen King, also received a Lifetime Achievement Award. And um, there was a bit of a fracas um, around this occasion because Stephen King when he accepted his Lifetime Achievement Award gave a speech in which he made a perfectly fair point that how unusual it was for a writer like him to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award when it was normally given to more literary writers and he said you know who's going to be here next year John Grisham I don't think so which is a fair point but perhaps made with rather poor timing or ill grace and when Shirley Hazard took to the microphone to accept her award for the great fire she delivered an impromptu speech in response to Stephen King and we have a little clip of that speech now Ooh. we're just and we're going to listen to it it's a couple of minutes but it's it's fantastic so so let's let's give it a listen I want to uh, say in response to Stephen King that I do not as he I think a little bit seems to do I don't regard literature, which he spoke of perhaps in a slightly pejorative way, I don't regard the novel, poetry, our language written, I don't regard it as a competition. It is so vast. We have this marvellous language. We are so lucky that we have a huge audience for that language. If we were writing in high Norwegian, we would be writing in a great ancient language, but we would have mostly reindeer for our readers. <laughs> and I'm not sure that that's the, the ideal outcome, but we have this huge language so diverse around the earth that I don't think giving us a reading list of those who are most read at this moment is much of a satisfaction because we are reading in all the ages which have been an immense uh, inspiration and love to me, and it's such an excitement. And I can pick up also, I can, I can take one of the ancient poems of our language and feel so excited and moved, and even sometimes terrified by it, that it seems very immediate to me. And I don't, I don't uh, see this thing as something we should read this or we should read that. We have mysterious inclinations. We have our own intuitions, our individuality towards what we want to read. And we develop that from childhood, I think. We don't know why. Nobody can, ex thank God, nobody can explain it to us. Drops mic. 
has it out. <laughs> brilliant. I mean, it's, yeah, brilliant. it's brilliant. So inspiring to listen to, I think. Yes, and, and she says no one can explain it to us in the way that I feel that mm, I yeah, can't yeah. explain quite what's so extraordinary about this, but yeah, yeah. There, is, there is something. And I think that's what fiction does, kind of, you know, more than almost anything else, because I, I, I would, you know, very few books I read now, I don't like books about war, and I don't like books set in the Far East, and this book is a book about war set in the Far East. But also she's but I so... Lo- I did love this novel, and I think... I think I would go back. There's so much going on. I yeah. think it is a book I would I would read carefully. I think she's too. Yeah. It's taken yeah. twenty years, so this isn't. She's just not. She's not slapping these paragraphs down. She's so good at evoking. Yeah. This is a thing I did love. She's so good at evoking place and and drawing landscape incredibly carefully. You really got the sense of it. You know that she rewrote. Did you know this? She rewrote the ending of the Great Fire when reviewers' copies had already been sent out. Amazing. I got a quote from here. She says, I found what I wanted for the last sentence as the publisher's courier came to the door <laughs> to collect the page. <laughs> that's after the end of 20 years. Speaking as a publisher, that's, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, surely no. <laughs> Alice, uh, have you got another... I have, and I think what you were saying um, about the sense of place, to me that is what the book is all about, and what I think is completely extraordinary about it is the way that it's both epic and miniature. You know, you have this huge sense of the Far East and you feel as though you're there, but it's also all about these specific rooms where things happened and their specific atmospheres. And this is Peter Exley's room at the barracks in Hong Kong, and we Mm. talked about, about him earlier and about people who are going to survive through all of this and people who may just who, although they're not the victims of war, actually they are. Um, And this is just his room. There were smudges of squashed insects with adhering particles. Damp had got at the quicksilver of a long mirror on a mahogany stand. On the wall by the other bed, pin-ups were pinkly askew and lettered signs carried insults, facetiously obscene. Gloom without coolness, the mirror unreflecting, was like the draped pelt of some desiccated leopard. There was a century here of obscure imperial dejection, a room of listless fevers, of cafard, ennui and other French diseases, the encrusted (laughs) underside of glory. And that last sentence to me actually is what the whole book is about, the encrusted underside she, of glory. She I mean, has a fantastic... Uh, there's a thing that she, she she gave an interview to the Paris Review, and she says in that that both the transit of Venus and the Great Fire testify in different ways to a world trying not to go to pieces under its burden of modern experience. Wow. Mm. And that's yeah. actually that's one of the things that is wonderful about the book, that although it's set at, in a particular time and and a series of places, and it's very evocative of that time and those places, that sense of the world still being in turmoil Mm. as it tries to come to terms with modern experience is the thing that I think is brilliantly done, the the connection with the personal and the political. Yes, yes, and there's another wonderful bit where she sees the sort of... uh, He sees the Japanese prisoners of war, Mm. and they're meant to be feeling superior to them because, after all, they're the victorious nation, and yet he says that he can't set aside the nagging humanity of things. Mm. And again, that was a key phrase to me, that there's an awful lot of sort of nagging humanity in the book, the, 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 just the sadness of these small details of things that kind of catch at the heart and yeah. which which are there even, you know, e- even though um, this is a time that people should be feeling things are going pretty well in a sense. Yeah. Some bit of the book is set in New Zealand, and I have to say it, it's having lived there, growing up there. 
nothing nothing captures New Zealand better than this this sentence for, for any New Zealand listeners. Um, a hemisphere of skies and seas, a world of that, with the land a mere crumpled interruption. Uh, it's just <laughs> a wonderful so idea of, a, of the Pacific Ocean and then this little, you know, as it were, the land, a land a mere crumpled interruption. I mean, it's that's, I mean, it's good stuff. Matthew, can you? Um... Can you give us a, a, a link, however tenuous, <laughs> to, to yeah. the crum, it's a bit of crumpled interruption? In fact. A crumpled interruption <laughs> from yeah. Matthew Clayton. As... How I've always wanted to be introduced. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to um, I'm going to loop back to something you said earlier about the difference between journalism and um, literature. And I, I guess I, when I when I read this and the, the first thing I knew about it after I'd consumed the book was that it had taken twenty years to write. It's an incredibly long time. And so I kind of looked into that a little bit and discovered that what had happened was her her husband had been ill. So she'd been looking after her husband for a long time. Then after he died, again, she had stuff to kind of tidy up to do with his life. Um, and I was wondering about the... Uh, I was wondering about Graham Greene, because Graham Greene famously was a friend of hers and famously wrote 500 words a day and would stop at 500 words a day. Um, as, soon as, he, as soon as he hit that, he would um, <laughs> he'd kind of give up. Um and so I was looking at what's the normal daily word count that an author um, <laughs> produces. What's your what's the going rate? You know what you should what yeah. you should be going for. Uh, you know, Andy, if you're writing, how many words a day do you, I, do you have? I, a, do you, I, I, you know, Graham Greene is a great um, idol of mine and a hero of mine. And actually, I do tend to write if I if I can get five hundred words out and I and I stop. Green used to say that he would stop wherever he knew what he was going to write the next morning so he knew where what he never left it thinking oh i've got nothing yeah. you know so he knew where he would pick up the thread the next day hemingway so, did something similar so yeah. hemingway had a thing where he he said that he would always stop before he ran dry so he'd always stop knowing that he had a little bit of juice left to start right. up with yeah, the next, yeah 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 and trollope day. trollope would write i think isn't it trollope write something like 3000 words a day and never god, rewrite god help us all yeah, yeah. He did, he, he <laughs> did, which yeah. explains a lot he did 3000 he did uh, 250 words every 15 minutes was how he'd gauge whether <laughs> so, he was like uh, the, whereas <laughs> i i don't actually i hardly write anything it's all rewriting because right. I can write incredibly fast, I've written a draft of a novel in three months. Right. But then I did spend oh, wow. eight, I did spend eight years rewriting it. So I think yeah. I am, you know, I'm certainly not making any claim to be anything like Shirley Hazard. But I, that thing of just going over sentences yeah. again, and mainly that's what I'm doing. No, and that's writing. really true, Alice, isn't it? The the process of writing at that level uh, is about accumulating enough words. <laughs> to get to the point where you can start getting rid of of the bad ones, yes. <laughs> you know the editing is yes, where so, the writing happens. Yeah, it's, the, yeah. it's, the, it's the long letter, short letter thing. I'm well, sorry, I didn't. I, I'm sorry, I actually didn't send you a short letter. I, I didn't have time. But <laughs> you teach, you teach creative writing, Alice. So, what do you give students advice on this? On on you know, the, the, uh, without getting into the, do you use a typewriter or a word processor question? <laughs> but do you give advice on sort of word count, or just say you know you just have to find that out for yourself? I think the advice I give, um, and probably somebody like Shirley Hazard wasn't doing it this way at all, is to write that very quick first draft and just to keep going and not allow yourself to stop however bad it gets. Mm. Because then you have the whole kind of shape of the thing 
and then you can take it all to bits. But somehow I I have to get that whole thing down to begin with. And so I'm always saying to people they should do that. But actually, for some people, it is the wrong advice because some people just write perfect sentence after perfect sentence and then they never rewrite anything. Yeah. Yeah. Different Von, Vonnegut described the, the two types of writing. He did a graph, which was to do with... Um... How big would the novel be if it took you 20 years and you wrote 500 words a day? <laughs> well, I can tell you how many words she wrote a day, yeah. um, which if you if you divide it up... That's rather unfairly. Well done, rather unfairly. Go on. Twelve point nine. But the thing is, that gives us all hope. It does so give us all so hope. So carefully selective yeah. well, that's is right. every single, single word, word in this book. You yeah. see, I think you know, some, yeah, some of these sentences. We've got all the words. Take... We're just trying to get them in the right order. <laughs> so, yeah. It could have taken a day to write some of those yeah. sentences, couldn't it? Actually, yes. You know, I, I, I'm adding to that by saying that's a, that's a that's a bit of praise right there. You know, the thing we that I was reading it earlier that that. She talks about how how literature is finding the right word in the right context, in the right balance yeah. to the, all the other right words you've selected. That's one of yeah. the strengths of her writing here, I think. You know, that the finding le mot juste, even if it takes 20 yeah. years and she averages 12 of them a day. <laughs> At the other end of the spectrum, you've got Bill Deeds, who's a journalist that I... Adore, mm. uh, I think, is a wonderful writer, and he said that his when he was you know at his best, he was a thousand words in a hundred minutes. Woof. That was what he Woof. what he did. hundred <laughs> minutes. That was what he aimed for as his journalistic standard. Michael Holroyd, who did the biography of um, of uh, 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 what's he called, George Bernard Shaw? Yeah, it yeah. worked out that he could George Bernard Shaw with his secretaries could produce more words in a day than Michael Holroyd could read. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a brilliant piece by um Keith Waterhouse where he talks about his uh writing routine and how it dovetails with his drinking routine. <laughs> <laughs> the, he, the, I remember um uh oh, what's he called Pete 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 oh never mind. Well JG Ballard was a mm. thousand words a day and which he he's he qualified by saying even with a hangover. But I think that advice is if you want to write a novel, you just do. You do have to just get on with it, don't you, and, yeah. and get it down. But I think it's also the way that this written is written. It's a kind of incredible compliment to the reader because it is, in a way, worth saying you are worth this much. And actually, you know, as writers, we do ask a lot from readers. We want them to pay for our book and spend two or three days of our life, which we're not going to get back reading it. Mm. And so when you, when you read somebody like this, and it's also, it's a level of craftsmanship. And with any very great craftsmanship, what you feel behind it is this huge kind of passion, a passion to get it absolutely right. And as a reader, you do just feel kind of tremendously grateful because it is as though she has done this almost for you personally, to get this absolutely right and also to take you to this place and, and to give you this experience as though you're living through it yourself. I, it's a huge gift. I, I was really struck by her... Um, I thought you, you, you'd like to know this, Alice, <laughs> that although I may not read another of her novels <laughs> next week, um, that I, was, I read her interview with the Paris Review and she talks at the end of that about books that she loves... And she's so um, enthusiastic and so um, persuasive. And she talks about Great Expectations. I think that's her favourite novel. And um, she talks about Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rhys. Another great, another great novel. Um, and she talks about... And then out of nowhere, she plucks a novel called The Small Back Room. 
Nigel Walton, one, yes. one we, we should do. Which I have ordered a copy of, yeah. purely because of that recommendation. Yeah. I thought, okay, that's a lovely... It's brilliant. Lovely novel. little thing, and the Pez of Powell and Pressburger film. It was made into a Powell and Pressburger film starring David Farrow. It's about a bomb disposal. Uh, yes, yeah. an extraordinary book. Um, so, uh, Matthew, will you be reading more of Shirley House's work? Absolutely, yes. John? Uh, certainly. I mean, I think we also ought to say, just, you know, for the romantic, you know, Matthew's already <laughs> confessed, I mean, this is a very, as love stories go, this is a pretty extraordinary love story, I think, um, be- beautifully handled. So, I mean, it's not just, you know, ooh, what a lovely sentence. You do end up, uh, despite what we've said, you do end up, I think, giving a damn about what happens to the oh, characters. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah. And it's a prop, and it is a proper grown-up work of fiction. I mean, I, I, I will, I would, I think *Transit of Venus* is probably the one I would, I would look at next. Yeah, I'm definitely will read uh, more Shirley Hazard, and I'm particularly looking forward to reading *Reading Green* on Capri, which apparently people tell me isn't really about green not surprisingly because i think mm-hmm. her work is as i said never about people it's about the place and i would love you know for somebody who doesn't travel much at the moment i would love to to um read that but when i was young um when i really loved a writer i used to think well i must save up some of the books you know i've been saving up quite a lot of yeah. forster for years and then i suddenly thought the other day is actually what am i doing this for you know i could be i could be dead in, in two years so yeah. I, thought I might actually just get on and do it now yeah, and not yeah, save fantastic. them up anymore <laughs> you might end up not really not really enjoying them as well. I, w- I always think that, you know. I've I got a friend who's saved up jazz. He's well, Tony Morrison. No. No, the whole of jazz. The, whole the whole of, jazz, of the musical yeah. form. Yeah, the musical form jazz. How, how old is your friend? My friend Jeff, he's, yeah, I think he's 50, something like that. There's time to go, Jeff. <laughs> time to go. <laughs> They're still making it, you know. It's <laughs> okay. like George Bernard Shaw. <laughs> yeah. God, not more. Um well, that just about wraps up this edition of Backlisted. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to Alice Jolly, to Matthew Clayton, and thanks once again to our sponsors Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at BacklistedPod, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash BacklistedPod, and on our page at the Unbound site at unbound.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then, from Andy, goodbye, everybody. And from me, good night. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisteds, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.